Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to have with me John Goodlad, or as he pronounces it in his Shetland accent that we're about to hear, John Goodlad, um, who has written this book titled The Salt Roads, How Fish Made a Culture, um, out in 2022 from Berlin Press. Um, And this is a fascinating book that, among other things, tells the extraordinary story of how saltfish from Shetland became a staple food um, across Europe, how it powered various economic booms, how it inspired artists, writers, musicians, um, and brings brings us all the way up to the present in terms of thinking about sustainability of fisheries um, and what the fishing industry looks like in Shetland, in Scotland, in um, the North Seas more broadly. So I'm very excited to talk about this book and ask you all sorts of questions about it. Thank you for being with us today, John. And thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Before we dive into the book, could you maybe start us off a bit with an introduction of yourself and explaining, in your words, in fact, that you sent me back, why on earth you'd want to write a book about salt fish? Well, um, uh, uh, I'm a Shetlander, uh, born and brought up in Shetland, and I've worked in the seafood industry all my life. I continue to do so. I've always been fascinated by history, uh, fascinated by culture. And um, and why should I write a book about saltfish? I think that's a very good question because for most people, I'm sure for most listeners to this podcast, saltfish sounds a bit of an acquired taste, something they're not familiar with, um, something most people have probably never eaten. But just zoom back 70, 80 years before the age of freezing, before the ages of canning, before our just-in-time supply chains and supermarkets, which allow us to get all kinds of fresh food. Before all of that happened, uh, it was essential to preserve protein, especially during the winter. Uh, And salting and drying were really the only two ways of of preserving protein. Uh, It was used for meat and for fish. Uh, So fish 
saltfish uh, became an incredibly important staple in people's diets throughout the whole of Europe uh, for most for hundreds and hundreds of years, and really saltfish only lessened as part of Europe's diet uh, uh, probably in the last 60 or 70 years. So it's beyond uh, human memory, uh, certainly in the UK and most of Europe, but it was incredibly important, unbelievably important. Not only was saltfish eaten everywhere uh, throughout Europe, salt cod, salt herring, but throughout the north of Europe, in Iceland, Faroe, Norway, Shetland, communities grew up based on catching and salting and drying fish. And um, saltfish powered these communities. There were hundreds of them. And I think no one sums this up better than the Icelandic Nobel Prize winning author Haldor Laxness in his novel called Salkavalder. Uh, which was published, I think, in the 1950s. And it was set in the 1930s. And like all of Laxness' uh, literature, it deals with profound moral and philosophical issues. Uh, he, deals about, he, he, he talks about feminism, about gender. The central character in Salcavalde is a young woman who moves from a farm to a fishing village where she works uh, salting and drying fish. And Haldor Laxness, in the middle of this novel, uh, in this most memorable phrase, says, when all is said and done, life is first and foremost about saltfish. And that would not have been regarded as an unusual thing to say at that time. And if you have, would have said that to many people in Europe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it wouldn't have been regarded as a remarkable statement. So when I read Laxness uh, talking about that, I thought, um, you know, that's the basis of my book. Uh, when, that when all is said and done, life is first and foremost about salt fish, or at least so it was for many communities throughout the North Atlantic. What a wonderful introduction and what a wonderful sort of inspiration to come into a project with. And I think it's really helpful to um, start with that foundation because, as you said, saltfish is not exactly common now, um, but that very much um, doesn't do justice to just how central it was um, across much of Europe really not that long ago. So I'd like to sort of start, I suppose, earlier than that and understand how it came to be at that point. So where did cod fishing kind of begin in Shetland? How did it become such a big, popular, lucrative trade? Yes, um, I think the cod fishing developed in the very early 19th century. But for hundreds of years before that, Shetland had had a very large fishing industry based on catching ling and tusk and other species uh, from open boats. And these were the so-called six rings. And these fish were uh, dried and salted and exported to United Kingdom and to, uh, and to Ireland. Indeed, even exported to some extent to the Caribbean. Uh, so Shetland's, uh, Shetland's economic history, like so many, is also implicated into the uh, slave trade. But cod changed all that in the 19th century, and it became a completely, it became a huge fishery, very different from the 
six serene open boat fishery conducted 20 or 30 miles off the Shetland coast. The cod fishing was a distant water fishery, uh, large deck sloops, uh, crewed by perhaps 14 or 16 crew members, fishing with hand lines and fishing around Faroe, Iceland, Greenland and Rockall, uh, rather than fishing close around Shetland. Why did this suddenly happen in the early 19th century? Three reasons. Uh, first of all, the most surprising reason, in the early 19th century, the time of what we understand as laissez-faire capitalism, the British government had a subsidy. If you, if you bought a decked fishing vessel, you received a subsidy of so many pounds per registered ton of that decked fishing vessel. It was designed to try and encourage merchants uh, in the UK to start fishing for herring, as the Dutch had been doing for hundreds of years and processing herring on board. The Shetlanders uh, saw the subsidy, the Shetland merchants acquired these deck sloops and rigged them out for fishing for cod, not the purpose of the subsidy. So an unintended consequence of the government subsidy was the creation of a cod fishery. They intended it to create a herring fishery, which it never, ever did. Um, so the subsidy was the, was the kickstart. Uh, it lasted for about 20 years. And by the time the subsidy was withdrawn in 1820, two other things had happened. Shetlanders had developed the distant water fishing grounds around Faroe, Iceland, and latterly Greenland, which provided a very regular fishing. These were very rich fishing grounds. And that coincided with the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the reopening of the Spanish market for cod. Of all the countries in Southern Europe, Spain and to some extent Portugal, were the buyers of cod, the people who were prepared to pay most for cod. And any of you who have traveled uh, on holiday to Iberia, Spain and Portugal, will be familiar with bacalao. It's a dish that's still served up in the best restaurants in Spain and Portugal. And the essential component of bacalao is salt dried cod. Uh, a great market that paid a great price. So the combination of good fishing grounds and a great market allowed the cod fishery to expand from its early subsidy days. By the 1840s, 1850s, there were over 100 of these large deck uh, smacks. Uh, and they were catching uh, large quantities of cod, which were dried and salted, and then exported to largely Spain, in fact, almost entirely Spain. And it became the driver of the Shetland economy for 100 years. It lasted, it began in 1814 uh, and continued right through until the early 20th century. Um, so it, it, it really was a huge industry. And its origins uh, lay in this quite remarkable uh, government subsidy. And the lesson I take from that is that governments very often get things wrong. And with this subsidy, they got it spectacularly wrong. They never encouraged a herring fishery uh, in the early uh, 19th century. But to some extent, the subsidy worked in as much as it kickstarted this quite different fishery, the fishing for cod. And I think that's 
a really, I mean, I was very amused to read that in the book, um, kind of, you know, you, you mentioned, I think, something like one of the strangest government policies or, you know, how could you have a subsidy that does exactly the wrong thing for so many years and not get rid of it? Um, and I do think it's a really interesting example um, and helpfully illustrates the incentives for people to go to see. Um, but there's also some other kind of bits of history, I think, worth tying into this period, um, not just the Napoleonic Wars and the Spanish markets, um, but of course, what's happening on mainland Scotland. And this is also, at least some of it, the period of what we now call the Highland Clearances. Um, so how was fishing sort of related to land? You know, what, what was tying people to the land or what was pushing them out to sea? Not just the sort of incentives to do it, but maybe some of the harsher conditions too. Yes, absolutely. Um, the land ownership system in Shetland uh, for hundreds of years had been very similar to, in fact, identical to that in the Scottish Highlands, where uh, the lairds, the landowners or lairds, as they were known in Shetland and in Scotland, uh, held large tracts of land which were sublet to tenants. The tenants paid a small rent uh, and uh, and and, and were allowed to raise their families on pretty marginal land. Very large populations in these places. In Scotland, in the West Highlands and in the Western Isles, the lairds discovered sheep. They discovered they could make more money farming sheep on these extensive estates. And the result, of course, was that terrible period of Scottish history where tenants were forced off the land. Uh, they were cleared from the land, the highland clearances. Uh, many of them settled in coastal villages, but most went overseas to the Americas. Um, and uh, the population of the highlands plummeted. Now, in Shetland, something quite different happened. The population actually increased instead of reducing. This wasn't because the Shetland lairds uh, were any different from the Scottish lairds. They were as... Uh, uh, as motivated by money, as unmotivated by the uh, concern for the tenantry as the Scottish lads were. But instead of discovering sheep, they discovered salt fish. And they discovered that they could make more money by getting their tenantry to fish for with small boats for ling and tusk. And they would then dry and salt these fish and export it, as I said earlier, to uh, the rest of Britain and to Ireland and sometimes the Caribbean. And so much, this was such good business for the, uh, for the Lairds that in the 18th century, they began, uh, not only did they not evict their tenants, they wanted more tenants. So they began to subdivide the small parcels of land, the crofts, uh, because what they wanted were, were crofters with a piece of land that was completely impossible to provide sustenance. So the men were forced to go to sea. The fathers, the tenants, and their sons made up the crews of these small open boats, the six rooms. And uh, the merchants uh, bought all the fish. The tenants were prohibited from selling fish to any independent merchants. They had to buy everything from the merchant stores. And the system of truck developed, whereby uh, they were permanently in debt. Uh, they were they received a bit of credit from the merchants, and at the end of the season, 
the money they received from the lairds for their fish was rarely enough to clear their debt from buying meal and buying food and buying clothes and the basics of life from the laird's uh, stores. So it was quite a, a different outcome from uh, the West Highlands. Uh, the population increased. Uh, it wasn't a better outcome in many ways. The sixerine fishery, the dominance of the lairds, and if, uh, uh, and it wasn't unknown for the lairds to clear tenants from their lands in Shetland. If a tenant had the temerity to try and sell his catch to an independent merchant, the tenant was forced off the land. So they were kept uh, almost enthralled to this fishery, that if they didn't fish according to the laird's rules, they were thrown off the land. Uh, but the population, as I say, increased. Uh, while the population in the highlands of Scotland was plummeting, the Shetland population increased during the uh, late 18th and early 19th century from below 20,000 up to 30,000. Um, so land tenure played an incredibly important part of fishing. When the cod came along, that kind of released uh, at least some of the fishermen from the, from the tenure of the land. They were able to go and crew on these large cod smacks. They weren't tied to the land, but the bulk of fishermen were still tied to the land through the uh, truck system and the tenure system. And um, when the Crofters Act was passed, in the late 19th century, which gave Crofters security of tenure. It's an incredibly radical piece of legislation. Uh, the famous Scottish historian Tom Devine calls that the, the Magna Carta for the Crofters. The Crofters Act uh, was a Magna Carta for the Crofters in Scotland. And in my book, I explained that it was also a Magna Carta for the Shetland fishermen. It released them from, from the obligation to fish from the land. And that really kick-started a further expansion in the fishing industry. But we'll come on to that later in the talk. <laughs> we will, um, because we've now sort of got all of the pieces to explain why um, the fishing industry became so successful and was able to range over such a large territory. I think that's another thing that um, your book does very well to remind us that we think of now as the Shetlands as being part of Scotland. And as you say in the book, sort of looking south. Um, but this is very much an era when looking north and the Faroe Islands seem quite far away, um, perhaps on mainland Scotland, but are actually not nearly so far away uh, linguistically, culturally, literally, physically um, from the Shetlands. And all sorts of networks develop between uh, these places that now you detail in the book are actually quite hard to get between. Um, and this enabled a lot of things, right? Obviously, people crewing on different boats. Um, and also some things that had to do with not fishing or fishing boats, but not bringing home fish. Um, what else were Shetland fishermen bringing back from the Faroe Islands? Yes, this was a really fascinating part of my research. Uh, and, and it concerned the, the, uh, the smuggling of alcohol and tobacco from the Faroe Islands to Shetland. Let me give you, first of all, the context. Uh, during the 19th century, as the cod fishery expanded and, and reached its peak, uh, there was a very large level of excise duty uh, applied to alcohol and tobacco by the British government. The same rates of excise duty applied in Shetland as it did 
throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. The Faroe Islands at that stage belonged to Denmark, and for some reason, uh, there was no excise duty whatsoever applied in the Faroe Islands. So alcohol and tobacco were incredibly cheap. I, as a Shetlander, had been brought up as a small boy with family stories about the smugglers from Shetland, the, the cod fishermen uh, from Shetland doing a cod trip to the Faroes, which maybe took two or three months fishing and salting the cod on board and then taking it back. And they would always go into Torshavn or Ferroiri or Vagar or some of these ports and they would buy, uh, it was mostly Faro brandy. It's called, it, was, it wasn't Faroese brandy, it was, it was brandy, probably French and Dutch brandy, but it was exported to the Faroes without any excise duty. And they were able to buy this and take it back to Shetland. So lots of folklore about, you know, taking back this uh, brandy during the hours of darkness, making sure they unloaded it in little creeks and little desolate places in Shetland before the smack came into a port where the customs and excise officers would come on board and search the smack to find any 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 brandy um, or tobacco or other contraband. But there was no statistical basis for this. And I, and I wondered, you know, uh, when I came to write my book and do my research for this book, um, and the, the, there was no archive in Shetland for the simple reason this was all illegal. There was no paperwork. The only paper trail was the occasional record in the courts where a fisherman was caught. And when I examined these court records, it was clear that these were fairly significant quantities of brandy that you know, a skipper had been caught with. And uh, the penalties were very, very severe. Uh, they were often fined uh, quantities, uh, given a choice of a very large fine or three months in prison. Invariably, the fishermen always chose three months in prison. I think money was so scarce, they didn't have the money to pay the fine. And possibly three months in jail in Lerwick was maybe just slightly less extreme than three months fishing in the teeth of a North Atlantic gale catching cod. But for whatever reason, very few records in Shetland. I wondered if I would ever find any record of the extent of this trade. And uh, I do a bit of sailing, and uh, I crew uh, on board a, a large uh, sailing ship in Shetland, a, an old historic vessel, the Swan, which is an old herring vessel that's been, she's owned by the community, and she, she sails around uh, the North Sea and tall ships, races, and so on. And she often makes trips to the Faroes. I'd been twice with her in Faroe, and this particular trip up in the Faroes, we we went to Torshaven, we sailed around Faroe, and we ended up back in Suderoy, the most southerly of the Faroese Islands. And I knew that uh, this was an island which uh, the Shetland cod fishermen had frequented very frequently. So we spent a day there, it was nice weather, we went for a, a walk around the small village, maybe a thousand people, and just above the pier where we were lying was a, was a pub. Uh, uh, it was a cafe and a pub, and uh, so we went in with the rest of the crew for a drink. And uh, I was just, I, I, somewhere outside the pub, it said that this had been the merchant house for the Thompson family, 
uh, in the 19th century and was still owned by the family, but it was now not a merchant store, it was a, it was a pub. So we sat down and we were having a beer and, and the lady who was serving in the bar came across and said, are you from Shetland? She'd seen the boat with the Shetland flag and we said, yes. Well, she says, that's really interesting um, because my great-grandfather used to run this merchant store and I was brought up with stories about how much brandy and tobacco he sold to the Shetland fishermen. And at that, my ears pricked up. But that's fascinating because I've been doing a little bit of research on this in Shetland. And I says, I don't suppose there's any... I can't find any records in Shetland. I don't suppose you have any at all. Oh, she says, absolutely. We've still got the uh, the um, ledgers documenting which fishermen bought what and what date and how much it cost. I said, my goodness, that's fascinating. I said, where could I find these records? Are they in the archives in Torshaven or maybe even in Copenhagen, making up my mind that I would, I would as soon as time allowed, go and have a look at these records? And she just laughed and said, no, no, she's just come with me. So we walked through the pub and went into a little room and there was an old office. It's almost as if it hadn't changed since the 19th century. An old desk and on the desk were all of these old ledgers. And I just started to flick through them. And they, these recorded the daily, the daily activity of this merchant, you know, who came in and bought what. But every now and then there was an entry with foreign fishermen. And although it was all in Danish, I could clearly see in very neat copper plate writing which boats had come in and how much they'd bought. And I was just starting to look at that when our skipper called in and said, I've just had a forecast. It's looking pretty bad. I think we should leave right away so we can get back home to Shetland before the gale struck. So having just discovered this treasure trove, we had to leave. Uh, which was terrible. So I spent the next year uh, planning my trip back to Faroe and all, and at the same time, sort of wondering, would this valuable archive still be where it was? You know, it was clearly a pub that saw heavy drinking on a Saturday night. It was not the place to store valuable archive material. Um, I just hoped they kept the, 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 the door locked. But, but needless to say, when I got back, it was all as I'd seen it. And I spent several days going through the records, and it was astonishing. Not, these fishermen were buying brandy, astonishing quantities of brandy. The average wage for a cod fisherman, the average annual earning for a cod fisherman during the 1860s, for example, was about 18 pounds. And I was finding some of these Shetland fishermen were buying brandy to the tune of 16, 18, even 20 pounds. I think the highest sum I ever found was 26 pounds. In other words, they were spending more than their annual salary on contraband, which if it had been discovered would lead to a lengthy jail sentence back in Shetland. And then I also discovered to my absolute astonishment that they were given a year's credit with which to pay. So it was an unbelievable business opportunity for enterprising Shetland fishermen. They could buy a large quantity of brandy. They could sell it back in Shetland at a, at a margin and make a profit. And from a cash flow point of view, they had a year uh, in which to come back and pay for it. 
It also illustrated the incredible degree of trust that had built up between the Faroese merchant and the Shetland cod fishermen. So it was an astonishing degree of uh, smuggling that took place, and clearly far greater than I had ever uh, was able to find out from any records uh, in Shetland. And that probably explains why the level of penalties were so high. The customs and excise probably recognized the scale of this activity and uh, were able to do very little about it. But whenever they did catch someone, uh, it was a, a three or six month period in jail that was the usual penalty. So an incredibly interesting and fascinating sideline for uh, Shetland cod fishermen. Not only had they become expert in catching and curing cod, they'd become quite expert in smuggling as well. Thank you for sharing um, that story from the book with us. I was really hoping you'd tell us all of the wonderful details about walking into the pub and um, her laughing at your expectation. Oh, no, we've got the book here. Um, and that really does give listeners, I think, a good sense of the book as well and the kind of wonderful detail that brings to life um, a lot of these things. Um, and I want to sort of stay in the Faroe Islands for my next question, because uh, as listeners now have quite a good sense of, uh, this isn't a book that just stays in Shetland. Um, and now that we're in the Faroe Islands, they're also a place that is heavily impacted by the cod fishery. Um, and you really make quite a compelling case that the cod fishery transforms the Faroe Islands in the 20th century. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, absolutely. And I think you earlier referred to distance and closeness. And the Faroe Islands, for your podcast listeners, some may be familiar with them, others who are not so familiar. These are a group of islands that lie halfway between Shetland, which itself lies kind of halfway between Scotland and Norway, the Faroes lies halfway between Shetland and Iceland. So the North Atlantic is not some huge open sea. It is an open sea, but interspersed within this open sea are archipelagos. Shetland is very close to the Faroes. Uh, Torshaven in the Faroe Islands is as close to Lerwick, the Shetland capital, as Aberdeen in Scotland is to Lerwick, the equidistant. The Faroe Islands is far closer than our seat of government in Scotland. So the Faroe Islands has consistently been very close to Shetland in many ways. At the time of the Vikings, there were many contacts, uh, many connections, spoke a similar language. When Shetland became part of Scotland, the Faroe Islands stayed part of the Danish-Norwegian kingdom. But with the cod fishery, uh, these connections were reignited. Uh, the Shetland fishermen fished mostly around Faroe. They caught cod, and as I've explained, they also traded with the Faroese merchants uh, for Faroese brandy. They also became, these were Shetland cod fishermen over three generations who'd fished around Faroe. Some of these cod fishermen had never been, knew these Faroese villages in a way they knew their villages in Shetland back home. Most of them had never been to Aberdeen. Few of them would ever have been to Edinburgh or London. Their knowledge of the outside world was Scandinavia. It wasn't the rest of the UK. And linguistically at this time, Shetlanders were, were speaking, as they still do, uh, 
uh, a dialect, which is an infusion of Lowland Scots and, and Old Norse. Um, so these cod fishermen were able to make conversation with the Faroese who had no English using their Shetland, strong Shetland dialect with uh, the Faroese Old Norse tongue. So many connections. As the cod fishery reached its end in the late 19th century, and the reason it reached its conclusion was primarily because Shetlanders had discovered a brand new fishery, the one that the British government had tried to encourage them to embrace 100 years before with that subsidy. They discovered herring. And the Shetland cod fishermen, and they'd also been released of the link to the land through the Crofters Act, the Magna Carta for the fishermen of Shetland. They were free to explore, invest, to become entrepreneurs in their own right. And many of them, hundreds of them, became herring fishermen. And uh, that led to the cod smacks having a shortage of crews. So many Faroese people came and crewed Shetland smacks in the 1880s and 1890s. And at this time in the Faroes, the Faroes were really a peasant society with a very limited fishing industry. Uh, they, they, the population was tiny. Shetland's population, as I've said, was 30,000. At this time, the population of Faroe was less than 10,000, almost a peasant subsistence economy. But these Faroese men came, crewed Shetland smacks for about 20 years, and as the Shetlanders abandoned cod and embraced herring, they put their smacks up for sale. And the enterprising Faroese saw these second-hand vessels. Many of them, they knew these vessels inside out. They'd been crewing on them. So many of these vessels were bought into the Faroe Islands and crewed by the Faroese who had been fishing on Shetland. And the Faroese to this day acknowledge that their fishing industry uh, owes its origins to the Shetlanders. First of all, teaching them how to fish, teaching them how to cure uh, the salt cod, and secondly, providing this, uh, this group of, uh, of second-hand cod vessels. And that in turn led to a huge boom in the Faroe Islands. Uh, they kind of took the cod story where the Shetlanders had left off. They continued to fish the same stocks, they then sent their cod smacks to Iceland and Greenland, as the Shetlanders had done, and exploited the fishing grounds there. And they, to a large extent, replaced the Shetlanders in selling salted dried cod into the Spanish and Portuguese market. And this fueled a, a, an economic boom in the early 20th century in Faroes. The Faroes no longer was a subsistence of peasant society. It salt cod propelled them into a modern commercial economy. And uh, the Faroese never looked back. Uh, they became a very, very prosperous society. In, and now in the Faroe Islands, their population is twice that of Shetland. There's 23,000 people in uh, Shetland today, uh, down from 30,000 in the mid 19th century. There's now almost 50,000 people in the Faroe Islands. It's a very prosperous, modern society, full of self-confidence, and I very much believe that that self-confidence and economic prosperity is down firstly to their embracing of the cod fishery, which then led to investments in other fisheries. They now have a very modern fishing fleet in the Faroe Islands, as well as a very modern 
fish farming industry. And it's also bound up very much with the Home Rule Movement. In 1948, uh, the Faroe Islands were granted a very substantial degree of home rule from the parent uh, Danish state, and that allowed them to rule themselves to a large extent. They made the rules that were most appropriate for their society, and they've continued to prosper ever since. So it's a, it's a, more, it's, it's a modern connection with our next-door neighbours in the Faroe Islands, and uh, I travel to the Faroes very regularly, and uh, I always feel I'm coming home. And the Faroese who travel to Shetland on a regular basis always tell me that when they come to Shetland, they feel that they're also returning to a place that's very familiar. In my book, I talk about something called uh, genetic DNA. Uh, there's a genetic DNA memory. I don't know if, uh, if it's true or not, but if your ancestors uh, visited a place and uh, over a long period of time, became very familiar with it. There is an argument that in the DNA that they pass on to their descendants, even though their descendants perhaps don't visit that, haven't visited that place, when they eventually do, they feel very much at home. All I can say is that most of my ancestors fished for cod at Pharaoh, and my first time when I arrived there as a, as a young university student in the early 1980s, I felt very much at home. So I play with that idea in my book. Uh, uh, DNA memory. Um, it certainly works for me, whether it's true or not. Uh, I perhaps remain to be convinced. But uh, so my book is more, as you say, than just fish and Shetland. It's about all of these connections that Shetland saltfish had with many parts of Europe, with Spain, as I've mentioned, and also, as we've been discussing, the Faroe Islands. Well, now that we have a better understanding of those connections, um, I do want to move back to Shetland for a little bit, um, because you mentioned that the Faroe Islands, the cod fishery overtook Shetland in um, the early 20th century. What, what was happening in the Shetland fisheries? What happened after cod? Yes, and this is the most incredible story. Um, uh, in the late 19th century, Shetland's fishing industry was still to a large extent in terms of numbers, the open boat fishery, the tyranny of the land tenancy and the, the six marines catching ling and uh, exporting that to Britain and Ireland. But overlying that was the much more commercial cod fishery that we've been discussing, uh, which wasn't tied to the land uh, and did be, provide the beginnings of a commercial type economy. But, you know, the merchants and the lairds uh, owned the sloops, owned the, the herring smacks. Uh, so the herring fishermen weren't well paid. Partly that's why they, uh, they turned to smuggling to augment their income. And then in the 1890s, in the late 1880s, uh, uh, some enterprising fishermen in Shetland started fishing for herring. The Dutch had fished for herring around Shetland for hundreds of years. And uh, the British government, as I say, had a subsidy to try and encourage herring fishing. It never really worked. But for a variety of reasons, these fishermen in Shetland who started fishing for herring uh, and the herring were taken on, were fished on a daily basis, quite unlike the cod fleet, which went away for three month trips. The herring were caught every night, taken on shore. The herring were gutted and placed in, 
in barrels which were salted and then exported to Eastern Europe. For a variety of reasons, the market in Eastern Europe, particularly in Germany and in Russia, and interestingly enough, a huge market in the impoverished Jewish settlements, the shettles of Eastern Europe, uh, had a huge demand for relatively cheap, cheap uh, protein. So there was a good market. There was lots of herring around Shetland. And within a space of 10 years, Shetland came from having two or three of these herring boats to having 400. Um, as I say, the consequence on the cod fishery was dramatic. No longer could the merchants get fishermen to do three-month trips when they could go and fish every night, come ashore every day, earn more money fishing for herring. And the, the land tenure changes with the Crofter Act meant that the crofters, the tenants, they were free to go to the herring without the laird evicting them from the land. It was their Magna Carta. So the, the fishermen of Shetland who had been enthralled to landowners, to lairds and to merchants suddenly found commercial freedom and they grabbed it with both hands and invested heavily in fishing vessels. Two, and the herring fishery reached its peak in 1905, when Shetland was called, and Lerwick in particular, it was called the herring capital of Europe. A huge industry developed, uh, not only with Shetland was catching herring, but fishermen coming from all over uh, the rest of Britain and indeed from Europe catching herring. And on shore, as I've mentioned, uh, this industry required thousands of people to gut herring. And the best people to gut herring were those with, with really skilled fingers, fingers that had grown up knitting chumpers and, and, and very dexterous. And these were the women of Shetland, the young girls of Shetland who became uh, the gutters. The herring fishery brought wealth to Shetland. It brought income to Shetland in terms of good wages uh, on board the herring boats. And it also brought wages for the first time for Shetland women. And in my book, I explained that the herring fishery brought two huge social changes to Shetland, enormous social changes. The first was that the fishermen of Shetland became boat owners. They became entrepreneurs in their own right. And that set the scene for the modern fishing industry we have in Shetland today. Uh, that was the first social change. No longer were they uh, enthralled to the lairds or in debt to merchants. They became entrepreneurs in their own right. But the second social change was the gutters. For the first time ever in Shetland's history, women, young women in particular, were able to earn their own money. The work was hard, the wages weren't good, but it was their own money. And never underestimate that financial independence and what it did to women in Shetland. And for young women, you know, 15, 16 year old lasses, they were able to, to escape the claustrophobia of the family cross. They were able to get away from their parents. They stayed in gutters huts in Lerwick and some of the other centres for the summer. They had social and personal independence as well as a little bit of financial independence. And that, I think, was the second huge social change. So Shetland in the early 20th century was an incredibly vibrant economy based on salt herring. Instead of looking to 
catch herring at Faroe and instead of looking to catch cod at uh, Faroe and Iceland and instead of exporting salt cod to the Spanish merchants which had bought salt cod from Shetlanders for almost a hundred years, the Shetlanders were exporting barrels of salt herring, two million barrels in fact in 1905, to Hamburg, to Stettin, to Danzig, to St. Petersburg, to these Baltic ports with magical names where the salt herring was transported inland to feed the peasantry of Eastern Europe, whether in Poland, uh, in Russia, or in, uh, in Germany. And as I say, of particular importance to the Jewish Shetlands. So it became on the eve of World War I, Shetland was an incredibly prosperous place, built on fishing, yes, but a whole new fishing based on herring, the new, the new salt fish. And my book's title, The Salt Roads, tries to outline the, the, these roads with cod, the roads had taken the fishermen to Faroe and Iceland, and the processed product was a road that took salt-dried cod to Spain. The salt roads in the early 20th century were taking barrels of salt herring into Eastern Europe through the Baltic from Shetland. It was a whole different set of salt roads in the uh, in the early 20th century. Well, I think one thing that's very clear from the answers you've explained to us so far is that um, these these salt roads, right, both the cod and the herring, had massive economic impact um, on the Shetlands. And also, as you've just detailed, some really big social impacts as well. Um, but the book doesn't stop there and also looks at cultural impacts um, and how this massive sort of change, right, the addition of 10,000 people in one time, um, women having financial independence in a way, uh, to name just two, um, really are quite inspiring to artists, writers, all sorts of different kinds of artists. I loved um, in particular the example in the book of uh, early photographs of the young women um, gutting the fish and that their hands were so practiced and so skilled that uh, the photographs literally only picked up blurs of their hands. They could get their faces and laughing and smiling, but their hands were just blurs, um, which I found a really sort of memorable detail. And of course, the book has so many great um, explorations of different artists who are inspired by all of this. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about uh, sort of maybe one or two examples that particularly stuck with you but of this link between fishing and this huge impact it's had on Shetland and artists. Yes. Um, my book, The Salt Roads, is clearly, it's a narrative, it's non-fiction. It, it's more than just a history book. I, I, I I explain my research and, and there's a lot of narrative nonfiction in the book, but it's more than a book simply about uh, fish and, uh, and salt fish. It's mostly a book about people, uh, about the fishers, the curers, the people who exported the fish, the gutters, the, and so on. And, and a particular aspect of my book, I, I, and this really, I suppose, developed as I was researching the book. It's, I suddenly became aware, I suppose I was always aware of it, but it suddenly became clear to me that fishing has inspired so many artists over a huge length of time and over a huge area. So I've mentioned Haldor Laxness, the famous Icelandic novelist. He features in my book from time to time. He was inspired 
by the stories of saltfish. Um, in the Faroe Islands, many visual artists, uh, and the most well-known of all is Mykines, Samuel Mykines, inspired by the Faroese cod boom. And some of his, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Faroese art, but it's, it's generally very heavy oil paintings. And some of his paintings, uh, which tend to look at uh, the dark side of cod fishing, the losses of ships and the loss of life, some of these paintings are incredibly evocative. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you have any interest in art, or even if you have no interest in art, look out some of Mykines' work. Uh, incredible. Um, it, coming to Shetland, uh, Shetland, the Shetland fishing industry inspired musicians, whereas in the Faroes it inspired visual artists. And I devote a chapter to one of Shetland's greatest bands uh, uh, and how they've uh, been inspired by uh, sea and, uh, and, and inspired by fishing. Fiddler's Bid, some of you may know of them, a great uh, folk band. They toured extensively in the early 21st century uh, and are still very, very well known, produced a number of albums. But the two I think I'll focus on um, both concern the herring fishing. Um, Scotland's, some would argue, Scotland's greatest poet, and others would say Scotland's second greatest poet, next to Robbie Burns, was Hugh McDermott. Hugh McDermott was uh, a poet who um, was very much part of the Scottish literary renaissance in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, he writes in English and in Scots. A troubled character, uh, like many artists, and in the 1930s, he was drinking far too much, and the lure of Edinburgh pubs had put him, his wife, and his small son into debt. He had no way of making a living. He was writing poems that at that time nobody wanted to read. He was a contrarian. He fell out with everybody. He was a he, he was thrown out of the Communist Party because he said he was a Scottish nationalist. And the Scottish National Party threw him out because he was a communist. And eventually his friends said to him, this is all going to end badly. And uh, through some contacts with a doctor in a small island in Shetland, in the island of Walter, they persuaded him to go to Shetland, to get away from his debt, to get away from the pubs. And he arrived in the island of Walter in 19. 32. And he stayed there for eight years. Uh, he got himself sorted out. The people of this small island kind of looked after him. Uh, they couldn't understand him. He spent all his time writing poems. This island, almost everybody on this island went fishing for herring. And uh, But he was interested in what these people did. He identified with poor people. He identified with the fishermen and the crofters. So he went to sea one night on board the Valkyrie, uh, one of the last sailboats fishing from Shetland, catching herring. And the result of that trip, I explain in my book, was that he wrote one of his uh, most famous poems called Herring. And it was during his period in Shetland that he wrote some of his best work, On a Raised Beach, Herring, and many other evocative poems. And there's no question that Scotland's greatest or second greatest poet 
was heavily influenced by the Shetland fishing industry. So that's one example of a very famous and very well-known uh, Scottish artist. Another one I mention in my book was John Grierson, who is known as the father of the documentary, a filmmaker who produced the first documentary ever produced. It's called The Drifters. Uh, you, can, you can see it online on YouTube. If you just simply key in The Drifters, it'll come up with the American band in the 1960s called The Drifters. So key in The Drifters, Shetland documentary. And you'll see it lasts about 40 minutes. It's uh, black and white, it's silent. And The Drifters looks at the herring fishing. And a lot of it is filmed in Shetland. It's an incredible piece of film history. It uses montage, a revolutionary method of filming of its day. And uh, it kind of set the template for all documentaries to this day. So people who like film, who love film, all know about Grierson's famous uh, documentary. It was first screened in London, uh, in uh, to the London Film Club, which was a group of intellectuals in London who were a private film club. Its first screening took place in the 1930s, and the, I think just after it was made in about 1936, I think. And the main bill that night was um, the battleship Potemkin by Sergei Einstein, a famous movie. Uh, Einstein was an incredibly famous Soviet filmmaker. He made many movies, of which The Battleship Potemkin is probably the best known. It's all about revolution, the 1905 revolution in, in London. And, and as used to be the case in cinemas, they had a, a main bill and, and a second bill. The uh, Andriftus was chosen as a perhaps slightly unlikely uh, uh, second bill for the evening's entertainment. It only lasted 40 minutes. The next day, all of the uh, reviews in the London press were full of praise, astonishment for Grierson's incredible piece of filming. Of course, Einstein's, Einstein's was great. Everybody knew it was great. But it was eclipsed by the reviews, the rave reviews that came out for, uh, for uh, John Grierson's documentary. Uh, and that documentary was based on the catching and salting of herring. So what is Shetland's fishing industry like today? Uh, fishing is still very, very important to Shetland. It's got an additional component of fish farming uh, today. So the seafood industry as a whole is very large. To give you one kind of jaw-dropping statistic, there's more fish landed in Shetland in a year than is landed in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland combined. Ooh. Shetland still punches very much above its weight in terms of fishing. It's, uh, it's still an industry that uh, Shetland's still a small place, but it's an industry that still powers much of the Shetland economy. Absolutely fascinating. And what a fabulous statistic. Um, and this, of course, brings me to uh, sort of one of the other key parts of the book that I want to make sure we discuss, which is um, not just about the economic part of fishing today, but obviously the environmental and sustainable aspects um, of fishing. And 
I'd love to kind of just go with this. You end the entire book with the following sentence, quote, if you want to save the planet, eat farmed mussels for a starter, followed by mackerel as a main course. Can you tell us sort of why you picked that sentence to end with? Yes, and I suppose um, a sentence to end books with this may be at first sight slightly unusual. I didn't intend to cover the whole sustainability question when I began writing this book. This was a book that was going to be about my journey around Europe, picking up the story of how Shetland was linked closely with the whole of Europe through the saltfish trade and taking it over a couple of hundred years. But as I went around Europe and spoke to people who many of my contacts for this research, or people who still work in the fishing industry, I found an industry under attack from an increasingly hostile environmental movement, which often uses emotion rather than science. Um, when I mention fishing and sustainability, I don't know, but I guess Many of the podcast listeners will be familiar with stories of overfishing, the need to close fisheries, to have large areas within which fisheries are banned. And at the outset, let me say that, of course, many fisheries have been overfished in the past. And of course, we have to learn from that. And fisheries should only be prosecuted if they're managed sustainably and managed responsibly and don't do damage to the environment. Now, I believe that we now have many fisheries in Europe which are well managed, as are many fish farming activities. And these are certified by, as such, by Marine Stewardship Council and Aquaculture Stewardship Council. So I already knew that, but I began to look into it a little bit further. Like most people, I'm absolutely scared by climate change. I see it happening in Shetland. I see it happening in our changed weather patterns. It really scares me. And I very much recognize that we all have to do what we can to reduce our personal carbon footprint. So in looking into this, it becomes clear, it became very clear that our carbon footprint is, you know, we take a flight to go on holiday, we drive a car, uh, you know, we buy stuff and, and, and all of that. But about a quarter of everybody's, a quarter to a third of everybody's personal carbon footprint is what we eat. And if we want to save the planet, we need to make smart food choices. And to my astonishment, I discovered that the protein that's reared on land, whether it's beef uh, or lamb or pork or chicken, or, or chicken has a quite astonishing uh, uh, carbon footprint. To produce a tonne of prime beef, it's estimated that at least 60 tons of CO2 and methane are released into the atmosphere. For pork and lamb, it's a bit, it, it's significantly less at about uh, 12 or 18 kilos per kilo produced. For farm chicken, uh, it's much less. Free range chickens, about 10. Battery raised chicken, which you know, many people don't want to buy, uh, is probably as low as six. And if you look at fish, the astonishing statistic is that most wild caught fish, the carbon footprint is less than two kilos per kilo 
of fish produced. And some fisheries are incredibly efficient. Mackerel, for example, which is caught by very efficient large pelagic trawlers, the carbon footprint is absolutely minimal, as low as 0.5 to 0.9 kilos of CO2 released into the atmosphere through boats, engines, and that kind of thing in exchange for one kilo of mackerel produced. And some fish farming is even better. Farm mussels, for example, has a carbon footprint of 0.2 for every kilo of, of uh, mussels produced. So some, uh, uh, so seafood in general has a carbon footprint way below land-based proteins in all cases. It has a carbon footprint that's comparable with and sometimes much better than uh, vegetarian and vegan options. Uh, after all, um, you know, when you buy your blueberries and buy your almonds, these have to be grown on increasingly scarce land with a huge demand for fresh water that's lowering the water table around the globe. When you farm fish or catch fish at sea, you don't need land and you don't need fresh water. And as I say, the carbon footprint is incredibly low. So I, towards the end of my book, I focus quite a bit on the whole environmental movement. Let me, for the avoidance of doubt, I'm absolutely at one with the environmental movement. We have to harvest fish. We have to catch fish in the most sustainable way possible. But seafood, in terms of carbon footprint, is a way, as I say in my book, if you are interested in saving the planet, make smart food choices. And one of the best and smartest food choices is eat more seafood. For example, farm mussels for a starter and mackerel as an inkers. I thought it was a great way to um, end the book. And of course, um, you've given us sort of a taste, apologize for the pun there, um, but a taste of kind of the discussion in the book. There's a lot more really interesting detail um, about sustainability and fisheries in the book for listeners who are interested in that. Um, and while that is the last sentence of the book, that's not quite my last question. I do have one more, um, which is, is there anything you're currently working on or looking to work on next that you'd like to give the audience a sneak peek of? Yes, I mean, I, I, I guess most of your audience will have written books or certainly if not books, then extensive theses and, and pieces of research and, I just love doing this, uh, but it is uh, it is a labor of love. I absolutely loved it, and there's a book at the end of it. Um, but I, so I haven't really decided what I'm going to do. I have decided I am definitely going to do further research and write another book. Um, much of my book focuses on the connections between um, Shetland and Faroe. Uh, and I'm kind of intrigued between the connections now between Iceland and Shetland. Uh, connections that are obviously fishing based, but connections that also go back into the whole question of the Viking period um, and uh, and trade in the medieval period. Um, and also to sort of explore how Iceland, like Pharaoh, has developed into a very modern, confident society. Uh, very much based on home rule. Shetland, uh, very much part of Scotland with very limited ability, very limited autonomy to make our own decisions. Um, so this will be, as is the Salt Roads, if, it, if I eventually complete the research, this will be a book 
uh, looking at history, looking at cultural collections, looking at linguistic connections, and very much a book about, I suppose, a travel book about me traveling to Iceland and talking to people there and talking to people in Shetland and comparing and contrasting the two cultures. So that's a, a very early uh, cherum of something that's going through my mind, uh, whether mm. uh, it, it remains like that when I eventually conclude the research and hopefully write the book, Time Will Tell, Miranda. <laughs> well, we'll find out. Um, but in the meantime, while you are off exploring that, um, listeners can read the book we've currently been discussing titled The Salt Roads, How Fish Made a Culture. Um, which has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, was a lovely read. And so thank you so much, John, for being with us to talk about your book. Thank you, Miranda. And uh, thank you for all the listeners who've joined us. I've really enjoyed it.